for we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melts the clouds of sin and sadness. Thank you for joining us for this program from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleville, Alabama. We hope that you will subscribe and will share our program with others. Now, we take you to the service of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We kind of finished up our faith, our first, first series on faith this past Sunday. Uh, we will move into another series along that same line of thought. Um, kind of here in a few weeks, but we're going to take a, a pause from that and just kind of kind of look at some other things through Scripture that are important that we need to talk about through the year. Um, but I've entitled my lesson this morning, and, and, and please don't let this uh, throw you off or fo follow me through here. I've entitled my lesson this morning, Being a True Church of Christ. Being a True Church of Christ. Uh, as, as I was sitting and writing down notes and thoughts and ideas uh, over the past week, I, I was thinking about uh, growing up and the things that I was taught, the things that were uh, shared with me through the years of, of, of importance, uh, the things that were, were uh, taught to me as kind of those, those core basic principles of Scripture that you know that, that, that are the most important, the things that identify us as trying to be a church that is following in the pattern of Scripture and of the New Testament. And those things are very important, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they're not this morning. But if you, if you sit down and ask, and this can very much, I think, be a generational thing as well, if you sit down and ask, People, what kind of defines us or sets us apart as a group of believers from other churches within our community or within kind of under that umbrella of church, if you will? You know, one of the things that we'll talk about in that conversation is baptism and the purpose of baptism. We'll talk about worship and the ways that we worship, how often we worship, how often we do certain things within that worship. And those things are important. But one of the things that I've come to the conclusion with, this is in my own faith, this is in my own faith, is that if we're not careful, we elevate certain things to be more important than other things. And, and I think that maybe if we're not careful, we, we begin to say these are the most important when there are things in Scripture that Christ and, and the Holy Spirit Spirit and God tell us it's not that these things aren't important, it's just that we've made other things less important. Jesus himself says, you will, or the, the world will know you are my disciples based on what? How you love each other. Not based on how often you go to church or what you do on Sunday mornings. He said, they're going to know you're my disciples, not on your doctrine, but based on your love. And so to me, that right there tells me that he elevates our love relationship to each other as one of, if not the most important thing, that we've got to make sure that we are doing right. Later on, uh, Paul's going to say this. He's going to say, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. He doesn't say anything about some of these other things that we find important or we teach is the most important. He says the way you fulfill the law of Christ is to carry each other's burdens, to have that relationship with each other. And I say all that to say this. I want us to make sure that as we walk this journey together, that we put the right amount of importance and emphasis on all things, not just some things, but that we try to be as true to Christ as we possibly can. 
Which brings me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, really and truly, these, these four verses we're going to look at, if you pull these four verses out of 1 Corinthians and, and look at this, and it's kind of Paul's description, if you will, a very quick description of the church that he's writing to and the things he loves about them and what he's thankful for, you would look at this description and go, man, this church has got it together. Let's, uh, let, let's look at it real quick, and then we'll make some quick observations, and then we're going to dig into it a little bit more. He says, starting in verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in whom you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all knowledge. Uh, God thus conforming our test or confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So you look at those things that he says right here. He, he talks about how they've been rich. They have, um, they have all kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge. He says they're not lacking any uh, spiritual gift. Uh, you know, the, the other thing, we'll, we'll hit some of these other things. You know, they're eagerly awaiting, they're blameless. You look at these things and you go, man, this church, they have it together. Man, they've got it together. And then you read the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians and what's Paul dealing with? Problem after problem after problem after problem. Sometimes we look at 1 Corinthians and we say, man, this is one of the most dysfunctional churches that you read about in the New Testament. They had a lot of problems because their focus was not really where it needs to be. And so, But as he begins, he says, look, this is the, this is the focus. These are the things you're doing right. These are, and, and everything that you read through 1 Corinthians and the problems that they're having and the challenges they're having really come back to this point. And when they get those things right, it lines up with these great things that he says about them. When you get this right, this is going to be better. And this is what's going to, this is what's going to be your identity. Basically saying this is who you need to be. And what I want us to do from time to time throughout the rest of the year when we have some of these breaks is to pull some of these great passages of, of, of Paul's from the beginnings of some of his epistles and look at the phrases he uses to describe the churches and then challenge ourselves and say, is this a description of us? If we're wanting to be the greatest church of our Savior as we can be, do these things that he's using to describe the church do they describe us? And this is going to be the first text that we kind of jump in with this morning. Um, so, so the first thing that I want us to focus on, the first kind of phrase that I want us to look at, he starts, and he's speaking about himself uh, personally in this moment, but he says, I always thank my God for you. I always thank my God for you. One of the things uh, in a lot of these intros of Paul is he, 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 always, he doesn't always, but a lot of times he starts them with this idea of I am thankful. And in this particular moment, and in the other moments of his letters, he's thankful for these Christians. He's thankful for these individuals in which he is writing to, and that he has been ministering with, and a lot of these people he has personal relationships with. And then as you fast forward to the end of a lot of these books, He'll have a list of people that he personally thanks. Paul is a very thankful person. And I think that if, if we're going to be a church that is as biblical as possible, 
and as, as righteous as we can be and as holy as we can be. It has to be a church that is full of thankful people. Do you agree with that? We have to be thankful and grateful people. You look at the world around us, though. Man, our society is not necessarily a thankful society, is it? It's not necessarily a grateful society. It's a, uh, as we were kind of talking about in class this morning, as Alex was teaching, we were, we're, we're a, um, a, a right here, right now kind of, you know, I, I want self-gratification right here in this moment. And we get that gratification, and then we just kind of move on to the next thing. And I want the next kind of level of gratification, the next level of gratification. And it's hard to not really be thankful for those things. You know, if you are just given things, and you don't have to earn things, it's harder to be grateful for things you're just given. But when you feel like you've earned something, man, you, you have a level of gratitude for that effort, for that process. In this particular idea, though, our thankfulness, the root of our thankfulness, as Scripture tells us and, 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 and shows us, is the acknowledgement of how wonderful God's grace is. The acknowledgement of how wonderful God's grace is and what that means for us. And that that means that I can stand before God on the day of judgment despite all of my flaws, despite all of my challenges. I can stand before God on the day of judgment and I don't have to be scared. I don't have to be afraid of that day because I know that God has redeemed me. I know that God has justified me and that He looks at me, as we're going to see in the back end of this passage, and we'll go a little bit further into it, but He's going to look at me as blameless. Now, I'm, that's hard for me to grasp. It's hard for me to understand that God looks at me as blameless and looks at me as holy, but He does. But when I understand that, and when I accept that, and when I grasp that, it should raise my level of thankfulness. It should raise my level of appreciation and gratefulness towards, towards, towards everything. When I understand how wonderful God's grace is, and Paul talks about this in Romans, when I understand how wonderful God's grace is, not only does it affect my relationship with Him, then it affects my relationship with you. Because I understand the grace I've been given, therefore I understand the grace that I need to give. And as we work in our relationship with each other, and there's going to be times that we may disagree with things, we may not see things eye to eye, there may be times that I hurt you or I offend you, not purposefully, and vice versa, you may do the same to me. When I understand the grace of God and I have that level of thankfulness and gratitude, I also focus on our relationships differently. I don't focus on the, well, he should do it this way or that way. I look at it and I go, you know what? Maybe Jake here, maybe Jake doesn't see this particular issue the way he needs to be seeing it. But it may not be just because he's wrong. It may be because he's young. Maybe because he needs to grow in Christ. And I'm going to give him the grace to do that. And Paul tells us in those moments, you don't demand that they come to you. We talked about this in our Wednesday afternoon class this past week. You don't demand that they come to you and see things your way. He says, those of you who are mature, you be thankful for that maturity. You be thankful for that grace. And you go to them. And you help them in that journey. You help them in that process. You don't be real judgmental. You don't be you know, harsh and hard. He said, you, you bring them along and help them grow. 
relationship with each other comes as we become more thankful. Because when we are a thankful individual, when we are uh, uh, gracious and when we see things uh, through those lens, instead of looking for negative things, what do we begin to look for? Positive. We look for things to be grateful about. We look for things to be thankful for. And, and it just changes our mindset. And, and Paul, Paul had a lot that he could have griped and complained about. But his focus was on the grace of God. And that made him thankful in so many different ways. God says, I've given you so much. Use those things to become an encourager. I believe when you become a thankful person, you become an encouraging person. You know how encouraging it is when you do something and someone just comes up to you and says, thank you? Man, those are some powerful words. To just know that, that I'm appreciated. To know that someone noticed and, and that I'm not, I'm not looking for, for, for you to notice, but someone was paying attention and they, they thanked me. And in that, you become an encourager. So I believe is the, one of the first things in this passage that we see that helps us become more like Christ and helps us become more of a church of Christ is that we become thankful people, which then translates into us becoming a thankful and encouraging field church. We have to make that a priority in our life. Okay, so what's the next thing? That he says here. The next phrase, is, phrase that he used that I want to talk about for just a minute comes from the second sentence. He says, For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians, he's going to talk a lot about spiritual gifts and about spiritual gifts. Um, in, in a miraculous sense that we do not necessarily possess today, but yet we still possess gifts. We still possess talents. We call them talents more so than gifts. But what he says here, and, and I love the fact that he brings this up, he says that in your church, he says God has given you everything that you need. He says he has enriched you he, he has given you more than you could ever imagine. When, when I read that this past week as I'm thinking about this, one of the first things that came to mind, and some of you will remember this, some of you are not old enough to remember this. How many of you remember the McDonald's supersize me menu? The supersize menu. Just a few of you. You know, McDonald's had this thing where you went through, they didn't offer it like necessarily, but if you go, hey, I want to supersize that, Instead of getting like a half a gallon large tea to drink on the road, they gave you like a gallon of large tea with a straw. They gave you like two pounds of French fries to go with your uh, you know, 150,000 calorie double cheeseburger that you're fixing to eat. And then some guy did this um, documentary about what would happen if for six months all I did was ate McDonald's and every time I supersized my food. And he just, he really all but killed himself in the process. But that's what God does. God says, in your church, what I have done is I have taken everything that you have that I've given you. God's given it to us all, okay? It's all from God. He says, not only have I given it to you, he says, I'm supersizing it for you. You bring all the love that you have that you can muster, and I'm going to supersize that. You bring all of your thankfulness, and I'm going to supersize that. I'm going to give and give and give beyond anything that you can ever imagine. And you see, I think we really realize that when we become thankful people. I think this whole section just leads one step 
to another. It's, it's a growth process. When I become thankful, I begin to see more and more blessings that God is giving me. And I begin to see how truly blessed I am and that I am enriched. That this life in Christ, this life with this body of believers should bring more to my life, not less. It should enhance those things in my life that, that are good, not diminish them. It should enhance grace. It should enhance praise. It should enhance worship, not limit them. But he says, he has enriched you with these things. And that is an encouraging thought for me as a minister as well, because as I look at all of you, and, and I think about this body that meets together and, and worships together, we also have everything we need to grow together. We have everything we need to grow together. The problem is, many times when churches don't grow, it's because the church has made up their mind, we're not going to grow. They've made up their mind, we're not going to grow. And, what, well, now have you, and you may say, well, I've never met a church that says I don't want to grow. They may not say that, but we've just got through talking about faith, and faith is an action, right? If you want to grow, then you have to what? Act as if you want to grow. You have to move in the direction of growth. You have to live in the direction of growth. And God says, I've given you everything you need. But what we have to do is then take that and put it into action. Put it into practice. And that's one of the things that I want us to be challenged with this year in this study of faith, is that we take things and we move on them. We act on them. We don't say, hey, I go to church every time the doors are open and that's the, uh, the extent of our faith. No, I want us to realize how God has enriched us with everything and then take those things He's given us and use those things, move those things, work with those things, and grow as a church family and bring more and more people to Christ. When you think about that idea of growth, I think you have to frame it in that way. Growth is not about numbers. Growth is about saving souls. We can add numbers all day long. We can do a lot of things to add numbers. But what we're trying to do is add souls to the kingdom. We're trying to find lost people and help them be found. And God has enriched us with everything we need to do that very thing. We just have to put it into practice. Now, as we do those things, the next thing that he says here, the next thing says, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. I love that phrase. Again, we're just moving in a step. We're moving in a process here. I'm thankful. I'm realizing the things that God has given me. I'm becoming more grateful and I'm becoming more of an encourager. And because of that, God is enriching our lives and we're able to do what he wants us to do. And as I do that, I begin to have this sense to where I am eagerly waiting for Jesus. Eagerly waiting for Jesus. One of um, this past... Christmas, this past Christmas, we were in, um, we were at my grandmother's house over in Waterloo, or up in Waterloo, and my brother and his family were there, uh, and we were there, and between my brother and I, we have eight kids. Um, between my brother and I, we have eight kids, and the plan was, and most of them are, well, of, Collins is the oldest, but, um, but then you go Vance. And like Vance is the oldest of, of the rest of them. And then, how old's the youngest one? Younger than, 
No, London's the youngest one, right? London the youngest one? Anyway, so you've got, but you've got like seven kids sandwiched, seven little kids sandwiched in this little group. So we get down there, and as an adult, I show up for Christmas. What's the first thing I'm worried about us doing? Starts with an E and involves food. Eating. All right. That's the best part of Thanksgiving and Christmas as an adult is all this food that you don't ever normally get to eat, right? And so I've been doing really good through the year, and I'm like, hey, Thanksgiving, Christmas, I'm going to enjoy, you know, Christmas dinners and this and that. And I'm like, I- I'm excited to get there. And, and, and like, oh, like we're, 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 let's, let's eat. Let's have a good time. What do the kids want to do? What do they want to do? Open presents. They are eagerly waiting to open presents. And I believe the word waiting is a far stretch of that use of word in that particular situation. They're just eager. They can't stand it. They're just like, you know, hey, we got to eat. No, 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 I want to open a present. Hey, let's come in here. No, no, no. And like, you got to go back in the living room, get them all back in here. And then I've got a cousin that she keeps funneling them back in. Let's just let them open one present. You know, if you open one of them, might as well open all of them, right? Before we finally got through eating, guess what they had all done? Opened up all the presents. They weren't worried about dinner. They weren't worried about what was there to eat. They were eagerly awaiting this idea of all of these gifts. And that's exactly what he's saying here about these Christians. Except it's not presents. It's Jesus. And it's not food. It's all these things the world says is important. This idea of eagerly waiting is this idea of as I grow closer to God and I'm focusing more and more on godly things, I am wanting to put away or put to the side the things the world says is important and put in front of me the things that God says is important. And as I put those things in front of me, I look at those things and I go, you know what I really can't wait for? I can't wait for the biggest day of all. I cannot wait for the day that Jesus comes back. I am eager about that day. And I I hate to say this, but I think that's an attitude that's missing in church today of eagerly looking to the return of Jesus. Of saying, that's all I think about. That's the most important thing. That I am so busy thinking and focusing on that that the things of this world just aren't important to me anymore. We need to find that, don't we? Listen, we can get all the doctrine right. We can get all the method right. But if we're not eagerly waiting for Jesus, are we doing it for the right reasons? If we're doing it just to do it right, and not because we're eagerly awaiting Jesus, then maybe we need to reset and recalibrate and rethink. It's not about the schedule today. It's not about the schedule tomorrow. Those aren't the most important things. I'm not saying that that they're not things that need to be done. I'm not saying that we don't pay attention to our lives. But our focus has to be not church, but Jesus. And as we focus on Him, we begin to eagerly want Him to come back. And we serve with an eagerness. And we serve with a thankful heart. And we serve with these enriched blessings. Because all we're worried about is being sure that we're ready 
when Jesus comes back and we've done everything that we can to be ready for that moment. So we have to eagerly await Him. And if we do that, if we do that, He says He will also keep you firm to the end. See, where we walk is so important. Where we walk is so important. Our footing is of the utmost importance. How many of you have been running or walking through the yard and you find a hole that you didn't know was there? How fast has that footing become very important? Very important. You twist an ankle, you roll an ankle, you break an ankle. You know, however you want to describe it, that, that, that footing is important. This word footing or, or firm is the idea of, of ground where you step. And if you think about your focus, if your focus is on the world, if your focus is in the direction of my schedule and my retirement and my practice and my school and all of these other things, my job, if that's where your focus is, you're going to feel uneasy. You're going to feel uneven because where you are standing is not firm. It's not, it, 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 it can come and it can go and it can wash away and it can, you know, Paul, Paul or James talks about when you don't have faith and stuff, when you pray that you're like a boat that's just kind of blown and tossed from side to side. And that's the image I get. But he says, when your focus is on Jesus, when you're eagerly waiting that return, you know that the ground in which you are standing is firm. And despite all of the junk that might be going on around me, I know that every step I take, it's a firm step. Just like Peter on the water. He gave Peter a firm ground to stand on as long as he was what? Focused on Jesus. And so he says, I'm giving you firmness. You, you know that the next step is good if you're walking in me. You know that it may be challenging. It may be scary. It may be unknown. But you can know that next step is going to be okay. And the next step is going to be okay. And the next step is going to be okay. And then that leads us to this last phrase. We're to be a blameless church. Full of blameless Christians. Show of hands. How many of you feel blameless this morning? My question is why not? Why don't you feel blameless this morning? Because we're so good at focusing on our faults, aren't we? We're so good at focusing on our faults. Someone asked me one time, and it was a great question, and I, and I had to think of a good answer because it was a great question. He says, why is the blood of Jesus so important? I sat there for a minute, and I thought about it, and I said, well, you know, we're washed in the blood of Jesus. And even that statement sounds really strange, doesn't it? For someone that's maybe not been a part of church their whole life, to sing the song, Are You Washed in the Blood, does that not just sound maybe kind of weird? Not, not, not if we've been here our whole life, right? Not if we've been here our whole life, because we're used to it, it's normal to us. But he's asking, why does this thing that seems so strange, why does the shedding of Jesus' blood of a man 2,000 years ago, what in the world does it have to do with me right here, right now? And it's this word blameless. It's this word blameless. You remember those glasses? I don't know if you still get them different places. But you remember those glasses that had a red lens and a blue lens? 
and you looked at the picture that had all kinds of different colors, but then when you looked at it with these glasses, the only colors that popped out were the red and the blue, and the picture made sense. You saw what was there. You remember those glasses? Okay, me and, okay, me and Judd, we're it. All right, Judd, this will make sense to you then. That's, that's how I view the blood of Jesus. You see, when you take those glasses off and you look at this picture, and it's got all these spots and dots, you see all the clutter, you see all the noise, and then you put the glasses on and the clutter disappears and you see the picture cleanly. It's called a filter. The blood of Jesus is our filter. When, G- when God looks at us, He looks at us through the filter of Christ's blood. And Christ's blood cleanses all of the garbage, all of the clutter, all of the junk. And when He looks at us, even though that might be our focus, He sees us as blameless and holy and pure. And we don't don't need to spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out how that works necessarily as much as we need to just accept it and be thankful and be grateful and live in that thankfulness as he starts this passage out. But I want you to know this morning that you need to walk and claim this blamelessness in your life. You need to walk out of here this morning with the encouragement of knowing God sees me as holy. Because he absolutely does if you've been washed in the blood of Jesus. Jesus himself says it. He says, believe in me and be baptized. Paul says it. He says that it is our baptism that now saves you. Peter says it. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins so that you may, and so that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. They are, all throughout the New Testament, there's these moments where he says, hey, stop and do this. Why? Because if you don't, then God doesn't see you through that filter. You don't have the cleansing that comes with it. You don't have the blamelessness from the view of Jesus and God because you haven't come into contact with the filter for a lack of better words. So it's so important that we understand that we are blameless before God if we've put ourselves in that relationship with Him. It's a great text, a great passage full of so many different things. And I believe that, not that we de-elevate some of the things that we've always found important, but we elevate more some of these other great passages of Scripture We can be the greatest church that Christ has ever seen, that we've ever been able to be. We can be that church of Christ that is worthy of bearing his name. And that is my hope for us. That is my goal for us. And it is God's hope for us as well. Let's close with a word of prayer, and then the lesson will be yours. God, I thank you for the chance to be here today. I thank you for this room that is filled with holy people, people that are filled with your spirit, who are filled with gifts and talents, God, who are just enriched beyond their wildest dreams. Help us to be thankful for that, God. Help us to be grateful and to be encouragers to everyone around us because of your grace. God, be with those this morning who have not, who have not decided to walk in this life, who have not decided to walk in faith with you, in salvation with you, God. Help them to hear your words today, to hear your call, and to accept that. 
call and that challenge into that life today, God. Just be with us as a church family. Help us to just be the best church that we can be. We'll never be perfect, but we can be great. We can be holy. We can be pure. Help us to be those things. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed. Thank you again for joining us. And please consider subscribing to our YouTube channel or our podcast. We can be found on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast provider. Also, leave us a five-star review, which will greatly assist in getting the message of God's love and salvation to others. You can also follow us on Facebook. Instagram. And Twitter. Be sure to join us again. And until then, remember to love like Jesus.